This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. On the occasion of Pablo Picasso's 80th birthday in 1961, a delegation of worthies from the Spanish town of Malaga journeyed to Cannes to pay their respects. With some difficulty, they wheedled an invitation to luncheon, during which they handed Picasso one of his painter father's sketches of a pigeon. Would he finish this sketch? Choked with emotion, according to the Spaniards, he nodded his approval. They never saw the pigeon again. Instead, they received a postcard with a drawing of the pigeon signed, The Son of José Ruiz Blasco, which was the name of Picasso's father. That comes, that little story there of an 80-year-old Picasso becoming overwhelmed and moved by Uh, a small remnant of his own artist's father's work that comes from the very beginning of John Richardson's book about Picasso called The Prodigy, 1881 to 1906. Let's see, when was this book published? Um, So between 1991 and this year, 2021, uh, John Richardson will have published four volumes on the life of Picasso and it will have only taken him to uh, taken Picasso's life to 1944. Richardson, I believe, died in 2019. And the fourth volume of his book, of his biography of Picasso, is coming out tomorrow, actually. And uh, I wanted to share today just a few things about Picasso from those first three volumes as well as one other book that I have about Picasso. As I mentioned, uh, as I've mentioned a few times here probably, very often if you want to get a sense of not just the life of an artist, but the life of a time of of an artist living in a certain historical period, uh, very often you don't go to perhaps what you might consider to be the best artist or the best poet or whatever it is. I guess nowadays it might be the best filmmaker. The one you go to is the one who seems to have the the greatest balance of uh, what you might say popularity and genius. So that even though I don't really care for a great deal of what Picasso did, it seems undeniable that if you want to know about art in the 20th century, you could do a lot worse 
than read a good biography of Picasso, because he seems to have been in the middle of so much of it. In the same way, uh, there's not a great deal of Ezra Pound's poetry that I really like, but if you want to know, again, about poetry from uh, 1901 until Pound's death, I think, in 1970 or so, uh, a good place to go would be a biography of Ezra Pound, since he seems to have run into just about everybody. So, to get to Picasso, here's one interesting thing here uh, to begin with. And this is from uh, a huge uh, catalog book of Picasso's paintings that I will also put a link to in the post description. And it says, the usual ways of examining an artist's creative characteristics do not allow for the fact that the urge to record a fleeting inspiration may lead him to forget the rules that he had long since mastered and to relapse into a, quote, pre-training phase. In fact, people generally assume that mastery, and certainly genius, implies absolutely perfect technical command. In Picasso's case, there is a discontinuity. Indeed, his work is full of discontinuities, for it is far from simple to trace the meaning of his subjects his intentions, and his aims. And that might be a little hard to, to grasp outside of the context of the book itself. I think what it was getting at, um, and I think this is something I read uh, Da Vinci saying as well, is that as you go along, um, and if you become well-known and people want to talk to you about what, what you're doing, what you're making, uh, artists and poets as well, um, creative people in general, uh, end up finding a kind of shorthand on how to talk about what they're doing. And they might even come up with a theory to explain what they're doing or how they do it. And uh, as I think da Vinci says, uh, or it could be Michelangelo, that um, when you're actually in the midst of creating something, the, the theories go by the wayside, or very often the theories only come later as an explanation, perhaps an unnecessary explanation that nobody but the audience needs to try and understand what exactly is going on. And I think John Richardson does this very well in his, in his books about Picasso to stress the fact over and over again that Picasso, uh, rather than being a genius who just... Uh, shot off these paintings and was pleased with them and went on to the next one, he seems to have been uh, mystified, I would say even bothered, uh, even uh, threatened by, by just not knowing quite how it was that he did what he did. The, the whole process made him very uncomfortable and he was always trying to search out a way of, uh, of figuring it out, and, and I don't think that he uh, was really able to at all. And that that inability to understand quite what it was that he was doing or where it came from uh, gave him uh, the power that he had. Um, this next quotation is, is wonderful simply because it says that uh, as late as the year 1881, 
a director of the Prado Museum in Spain, felt able to dismiss El Greco's paintings as absurd caricatures. And it was not until the modernistas that this Spanish attitude towards El Greco really changed. And that's nice for me to see because that's an example I'm always coming back to of uh, whoever it is now that is seen with renown or fame or having great influence or as being a linchpin, uh, a turning point, or just a, a massive influence on art or culture. It's wonderful to come across a passage where you realize that, in this case, someone like El Greco uh, was for a long time not considered to be much of anything at all, and that it took uh, an effort uh, of other artists to resurrect him. I think of the story and I'm not entirely clear on the details, but the idea that uh, Herman Melville and uh, Moby Dick sort of, uh, sort of disappeared for a long time until the 1920s when, uh, I can't remember who it was, but someone uh, sort of read the book again and realized, my gosh, read this book. This is, uh, you know, if we're propping up Ulysses or the Wasteland these days, uh, in the early 20s, 1920s, um, we should be doing the same for Moby Dick. And this next passage says, the work that Picasso did after his Cubist period, so his Cubist period, I guess, is 08, 09, 1908, 1909, until the mid-19-teens, 1915 or so. So this says the work that Picasso did from 1916 to 1924 was among the most baffling in his entire output. Uh, people thought that they knew what to expect from him and that the, uh, the scholarly term for it is mimetic copying uh, of basically of making a painting that represents something that you can recognize. Uh, people thought that Picasso had moved beyond such things of making a picture of something that was basically recognizable. They thought he had, that, that such ideas had been superseded. But now, between 1916 and 1924, the great iconoclast bewildered the experts and the general public alike by returning to a representational art of, monumental, of a monumental and statuesque kind. And if you do go looking for these paintings, they are quite strange. The, uh, uh, I believe they're mostly of women, uh, and they look sort of overweight and squat, and they are. They look very monumental and statuesque, and they're bizarre because you don't quite know what to, uh, what to make of them. And really, in this context, I think of those, uh, those uh, newsreel footages, the, the newsreel footage of when uh, Bob Dylan played electric for the first time in England. And uh, what you have uh, outside the, the angry young uh, British teenagers outside the show um, are just so pissed off because they, they expected that all you would have was Bob Dylan, a guitar, and the harmonica that he wore around his neck. And they're just so angry with him that he's now playing with a band. He's playing electric guitar. There's another electric guitar and a bass behind him and someone on the drums. And their preconception of Bob Dylan or what they had in mind 
of what folk music was, uh, was that to go electric and to have the four-piece or five-piece band was selling out. And suddenly they're being shown that, no, that is not the case. Um, and you sort of want to slap these kids uh, for thinking this way. Uh, they've latched onto this uh, immense creative force, uh, whether you like Bob Dylan or not, I think you can say that he is an immense creative force. And uh, But they want him to remain static. They want him to stay where he is. And that is just not uh what someone with that kind of immense creative capacity can do, and that is obviously not what uh, Picasso could do. And that's the thing, too. Uh, I don't really care for the Cubist stuff, and I don't care for the, the monumental statuesque stuff either, um, but it is sort of a, uh, at the same time, it's sort of an electrifying experience to just page through uh, a huge collection of his paintings and see just how many different iterations of himself he was able to uh, to dredge up and uncover. And this, and this comes from the very end of this book, so this is near the end of Picasso's life. Um, and it says, uh, and this is long after Picasso has become beyond rich and beyond famous, so he is sort of ensconced in a mansion and surrounded by, uh, you might say, yes-men and people who won't tell him otherwise. And uh, it says that his working life at this time, his painting, it says, uh, behind the blank or beside the blank canvas that he's working on, two others in varying degrees of completion are on the floor. Not that work already done can serve as a substitute for present work, it is no more, it is nothing more than proof of past productiveness. This is the idea that if you win the Nobel Prize, uh, that is more like a tombstone than it is a real award. That is someone telling you, uh, you did a great job, you're basically done now. Um, and it says, this insight may explain the frenetic output of Picasso's last years. At times, he painted three, four, or even five pictures in a single day, driven by the compelling urge to prove himself anew over and over again. This is the great compulsion uh, that creative uh, artists can get into the mix of. And it reminds me of a, uh, a, a remark by Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk, Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who... Uh, was feeling um, kind of self-conscious and upset with himself that uh, he wasn't able to write as much poetry as he wanted to. I think in part because of the daily practice of just being a monk was also keeping him from it. And Merton came across a remark from T.S. Eliot, which said, uh, this is Eliot saying that uh, he saw every new idea for a poem as a temptation and that uh, it was uh, sort of his motto to resist the temptation as long as possible. So on the one hand, you have someone like Eliot who was able to do that and who produced very little poetry. And, uh, and on the other hand, uh, and I think the majority experience is uh, the experience of someone like Picasso or uh, I think of Bob Dylan again, of who knows how many albums he's released, um, or of uh, Robert Lowell in, in 
in Lowell's case, you bring in uh, mental illness into the picture of a sort of uh, um, uh, manic need to just constantly be creating, because if you're not doing that, then you are left sort of alone with your own mind, and you don't quite know what to do with yourself. Um, in any case, now we move on to uh, the actual books by John Richardson on Picasso. And in the first one, he is talking about Picasso's 1907 painting, uh, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. And he is saying that at the 1988 uh, Picasso exhibit, um, where this painting was shown, it says, in some respects, the profusion of preparatory, preparatory drawings that were shown that led up to the painting proved too much of a good thing. It encouraged scholars to focus on the sketches at the expense of the painting itself. And that sort of speaks for itself too, doesn't it? Uh, it is so easy for scholarship and the ones that want the explanation and the theories to focus on how Picasso got there rather than to focus on what he did when he got there. And in connection with this, I have a remark of Picasso that says um, to an interviewer, uh, you must not always believe what I say. Questions tempt you to tell lies, particularly when there is no answer. And uh, we mentioned El Greco earlier, and uh, John Richardson mentions that the uh, strange sort of, uh, the, the shape that the Les Demoiselles d'Avignon takes on, the shape of the canvas itself, was modeled on uh, one of the uh, altarpieces of, of an El Greco, which only took on that shape after, it, after El Greco's painting was cut down uh, to fit a canvas. Uh, long after he had died. So that is sort of an accident that happened that ended up influencing uh, Picasso. And in answer to uh, more interviewers who were wondering, are the whores in Picasso's painting based on real women? Is, the, uh, is it based on a specific brothel that he used to go to? Uh, Picasso was indignant and said, would I be so pathetic? as to seek inspiration in a reality as literal as a specific brothel in a specific city on a specific street. My characters are imaginary characters. And then there is the sad, uh, not sad, uh, just unexpected um, life of the painting, uh, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. It says, John Richardson says that the um, by the summer of 1907, Picasso had finished it or set it aside for good. Uh, it was not exhibited until 1916, and it was not recognized as a great achievement until uh, the 1920s when the surrealist André Breton became its sort of cheerleader. And during that time, you have to think 13, 14, 15 years, when Picasso is becoming famous, he still has this painting that he believes to be one of his best or his best, and nobody really knows what the hell to do with it. Uh, his friends don't like it, and his wife certainly doesn't like it, uh, uh, his wife and his girlfriends, because it is a picture of, uh, picture of prostitutes. And John Richardson has the wonderful remark that 
Besides exhaustion, Picasso suffered from a terrible spiritual isolation. There was nobody with whom he could share the exaltation and the anguish of being way ahead of his time. And that's a nice, uh, a nice image there. Uh, we think of this great painting and that it must have uh, been an, an, an immediate hit, but it wasn't. Um, let's see. Here. Here's Picasso again talking about uh, interpretation. He says, mathematics, trigonometry, chemistry, psychoanalysis, music, and whatnot have been related to cubism to give it an easier interpretation. All of this, however, has been pure literature, not to say nonsense, which has only succeeded in blinding people with theories. And uh, Picasso's sort of, uh, what you would say, uh, co-inventor of uh, cubism, the painter uh, Brach, uh, basically says the same thing. Uh, he is quoted as saying, the moment that people started to define cubism, to establish its limits and its principles, I got the hell out. So my mantra uh, with this podcast all along has been um, the experience of the artwork is what matters. The experience is the primary thing. And that if we get caught talking about it, or uh, not necessarily talking about it, if we get caught explaining it, or uh, blinding people with theories, as Picasso says, or of just surrounding uh, an immense experience with as Picasso says, pure literature, not to say nonsense, uh, that is when uh, we are getting in trouble. And here, this is a nice story. Um, there, there's another poet or another painter that uh, John Richardson mentions um, who was trying to get on himself as a painter. And he was constantly asking, how old was Picasso when he painted this painting? How old was he when he made this painting? And uh, John Richardson says, uh, when he was told how old Picasso was when he made such and such a painting, this guy always said, oh, I'm not that old just yet. I will do just as much as that when I am that age. And uh, he tells his wife, I am ahead of Picasso and I, and I am ahead of Brach. I am not just analyzing geometric forms. I am trying to come to grips with the rhythm of modern life, trying to break down lines and architecture. But of course, this is a painter that no one has heard of and that no one studies anymore, and you only come across him in a biography of Picasso. Now, in the copy of the book I have, uh, I wrote the word fuck in the margins because that is something that I have always done or I used to do. Um, I remember thinking, uh, James Joyce was 26 years old when he wrote The Dead. So um, I should be able to write something as good as The Dead by the time I'm 26 and on and on. So that was nice to see uh, my own foibles living in somebody else 100 years ago in terms of Picasso. Um, let's see here. All right, just a few more left here. Uh, John Richardson mentions at one point uh, when visitors would go to see Picasso. Picasso was extremely um, 
annoyed by visitors, and he valued his, his own privacy, his own isolation. And he mentions at one point someone going to see him, and it says, Picasso opened the door himself. Uh, he did not look as if he had been painting, but nevertheless one felt as if one was disturbing him. Uh, just Picasso sitting by himself alone, uh, just thinking. You imagine what uh, what a moment inside Picasso's head uh, may have been like. And at the end of his life, uh, Picasso says to a friend in 1965, um, you can see how far this unstoppable impulse goes. He says, Picasso says, what I am doing now is the destruction of modern painting. We have already destroyed the old masters and we must now destroy the modern ones. And you can see that is where he is poisoning himself, you might say. Um, a long time ago, in uh, Simon Shama's uh, TV series on the power of art, he says something like, uh, nobody, no other artist has had a more pitiful third act than Pablo Picasso. And I remember a friend of mine being pretty offended by that, how, you know, uh, who the hell is Simon Shama? Uh, to, <laughs> who the hell is anybody, really, to criticize a mind as huge as Picasso's. Uh, but uh, as I said, uh, even though I can sort of marvel at the places that he took himself, uh, I don't really have a problem in looking at the, looking at, uh, uh, you know, a huge catalog of Picasso's entire output and just sort of uh, laughing or shrugging at the last 30 years of what he did, of painting the same thing over and over again of this this manic huge thing of not being able to uh, finish anything, not being able to do anything at his old power. And it just seems clear that he uh, is worried and frenzied and manic and can't help himself. I don't think there's anything wrong in admitting that uh, great artists can do that. And really, on the one hand, that's the other thing I've mentioned here many times, on the one hand, it's fine if that's what Picasso needs to do. Um, it's fine for a poet, as I mentioned, like Robert Lowell. Um, if you have renown and fame already, and you have a publisher at the ready constantly already, that's fine. If you want to keep just giving poetry to the world, even if it's not any good, uh, and if it keeps you sane, if that's what uh, keeps you going during the day, that's fine. Uh, there's always that double edge there. On the one hand, if the writer needs to do that, if William Wordsworth needs to keep writing and revising his poetry until the end of his life, even if in the process he's making his earlier poetry uh, worse. Um, and the same thing with Walt Whitman. If, if that's what Whitman needed to do uh, to keep himself going, by all means, do it. But um, that's th there's no reason for people uh, later on to just ignore those revisions, ignore those paintings, ignore, the, ignore that poetry. But then you have this wonderful uh, remark of Picasso's, where uh, we all know that uh, Picasso's love of sort of dismembering 
bodies, dismem dismembering the human shape and putting eyes here and there, noses here and there. And uh, the idea is, is that you're seeing uh, a shape or a face or a body from all perspectives at the same time. Although, based on what Picasso says about uh, don't ask me questions that don't have any answers, maybe we, maybe that's not even an accurate answer either. But it's nice to see what Picasso says here about that. Uh, he says that he's redistributing body parts as if he were redesigning humanity. And he says, to put eyes between the legs, sex organs on the face, to contradict to show one eye full face and the other eye in profile. Nature does many things the way I do, but nature hides them, but she hides them. And uh, later on, Picasso says, God is really only another artist. He invented the giraffe, the elephant, and the cat. He has no real style. He just keeps trying other things. And... <laughs> That's a wonderful thing to say. God has no real style. God just keeps trying other things. Uh, there is Picasso uh, attributing his own foibles to God, but I think, uh, at least in that sense, it is an accurate statement. Um, what is the style of a mountain or a river or an ocean? You know, uh, he has no real style. He just keeps trying other things. Um, and the very last thing here are actually remarks from Jean Carteau, who happened to be in the room when Picasso was, I believe, designing um, uh, a theater set in the 1919-1920 or so. And uh, there was an audience around, so other people, not an audience, but a handful of people around who got to see Picasso uh, uh, drawing or painting in the moment. And this is what Jean Cocteau says. Uh, Picasso walked up and down. He began by rubbing red chalk over the panel, which turned the unevenness of wood into marble. So it starts out uh, just with chalk on a panel, and suddenly the wood, he has made the wood look like marble. Then he took a bottle of ink and traced some majestic-looking lines. Abruptly, he blackened a few hollow spots, and three columns appeared. Suddenly, uh, the, the, the people gathered around him understand what he has been doing. Uh, so three columns appeared. The apparition of these three columns was so sudden and so unexpected that we who were watching began to clap. And when we were in the street, I asked Picasso if he had calculated uh, the apparition of those columns, if he knew what he was doing as he was doing it. And Picasso answered that the artist is always calculating, always calculating without knowing. That bears repeating. The artist is always calculating without knowing that the Doric columns that he, that he drew, the Doric columns came forth as the Greek uh, poetic line, the hexameter does, the Doric column came forth, as a hexameter does, from an operation of the senses, and that he had perhaps just invented that column in that moment in the same way that the Greeks themselves had discovered it. Uh, and that, again, is Picasso being haunted by the creative act. 
Let me read that paragraph again without all the interjections uh, to get a sense of it. Picasso walked up and down. He began by rubbing red chalk over the panel, which turned the unevenness of the wood into marble. Then he took a bottle of ink and traced some majestic-looking lines. Abruptly, he blackened a few hollow spots, and three columns appeared. The apparition of these columns was so sudden and so unexpected that we began clapping. When we were in the street, I asked Picasso if he had calculated the apparition of the columns, and he answered that the artist is always calculating without knowing that the Doric columns came forth, as a hexameter does, from an operation of the senses, and that he had perhaps just invented that column in the same way that the Greeks had discovered it. And a later remark says, uh, he would always have a curious detachment about his own work, as if it had been executed by someone else. The purpose of his visits was not the glory in his own accomplishments. And I think here he is visiting the house of someone who has bought one of his paintings or he is going to one of his own exhibits of work that had been done in the previous few years. The purpose of his visits was not the glory in his own accomplishments, but to solve the unsolvable mystery of how he had arrived at this or that particular point. Without a precise idea of his bearings, he was unable to go on to make new discoveries. And in this sense, you see Picasso, who is talking about uh, avoiding mere literature, avoiding theories, and avoiding answers, but on some level, at least just within himself, at least privately in his own mind, at least privately within, you can imagine him, uh, sh this short man, uh, uh, going among his own paintings and not speaking and just staring. Have you ever seen, if you've ever seen a picture of Picasso looking very serious uh, with his eyes, they're really unforgettable eyes and the, the idea of him just walking among his own paintings and gazing at them and staring at them and wondering quite where they came from or remembering, as he must have, the moment uh, or the day or the night or the room, or the studio, or uh, uh, what brushes, what paints, what whatever it was that he was using, he, he could probably remember all of those things. And quite remembering how he got there, he probably had his own private theories and his own private narrative that did just what he needed it to do to get to the next day, to get to the next painting, even if none of those answers were ever final ones. And this very last remark, um, and these are, I believe, yes, this first one is Picasso himself saying, uh, one's work is a way of keeping a diary. Nobody has any suspicion of the solitude I have created around myself. It is so difficult these days to be alone, since we all have watches. Have you ever seen a saint with a watch? And uh, have you ever seen a saint with an iPhone? Um, can you imagine Picasso with an iPhone? And this last remark comes from John Richardson himself. I love this. Uh, uh, he says, 
We should not forget that besides such masters as El Greco, Angra, Gauguin, and Cezanne, the principal influence on Picasso would be his own earlier paintings. And I'll repeat that. Uh, we should not forget that besides such masters as El Greco, Angra, Gauguin, and Cezanne, the principal influence on Picasso would be his own earlier paintings. Again, you have the idea of uh, just go to Wikipedia or um, actually, I think there's the, the website is called wikiart.org or .com um, and just search for what they have for Picasso. Thousands and thousands of paintings, uh, sketches, statues, um, uh, theater sets, costumes, um, there was no end to what he was doing, so that when you have produced so much, it isn't such a surprise, I don't think, that um, that you that you can look at yourself from a year or two years or 20 years, or in Picasso's case, even 50, 60, 70 years. He had a, uh, a favorite drawing that he did when he was three or four or five of... Um, or actually, that might not be the case. I think he was claiming that he was three or four or five, but he was actually nine or ten when he uh, drew a picture uh, of, uh, um, of of Hercules. And um, when you have that much of yourself to look back on, um, it can be very easy to to be <laughs> to be influenced by yourself. You've done that much, so. What is this now? Uh, about a, almost 40 minutes. Okay. So as I said, the next, uh, the last volume that John Richardson did about Picasso, and it's the volume that covers Picasso's time in Paris during World War II. Uh, it covers the time that he was, uh, that he painted Guernica, and also um, uh, the other great paintings. Um, but of course, I can't remember the names of the animals that he's doing. Uh, his great bull paintings, uh, I'm thinking of, um, as well. Uh, so I will almost certainly be coming back to Picasso in the next month or two after I get through Richardson's latest book. So I hope this little peek has been uh, enjoyable in the meantime. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.